And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch. By but oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher here in Northern California at the seventh grade level. And I have uh, been a geek since birth, really. Uh, my father has admitted that uh, had Dungeons and Dragons existed when he was in high school, he probably would have played it. But it didn't exist when he was in high school, so instead he tried out for the baseball team. <laughs> Uh, and I gotta say, uh, the geekiest thing about me, I'm gonna throw this one in here, is uh, <clears throat> the first live concert I ever actually saw in my life was uh, as a 20-something. Let me guess, let me guess. Weird Al. Yep. <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, and how about you? I'm Damien Harmony. Uh, I am a Latin teacher and next year also a world history teacher. Welcome back to the club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, At actually, the high school level, though, so yes. you get to do more stuff. Much more than I want, yes. Uh, actually, <laughs> they told me, you're going to have to take a social science on. I said, okay, do you want p parent phone calls? They said, no. I said, then don't give me government and economics. <laughs> I said, for that matter, you probably don't want to give me U.S. history, because when the Nazis are in color photos and wearing suits and ties, I'm still going to call them Nazis. At which point they said, Shit, you're probably right. Yeah. Why don't you take world, world history? history? I said, yeah, there yeah. are black and white photos there. It's probably safe. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a geek uh, most of my life as well. Uh, and actually, I would say that baseball is a geek sport. Um, you're essentially doing a lot of math to keep up with a, a bunch of players who fail a majority of the time. Yeah, well, stats, stats being what they are, baseball fandom being what it is, I would argue it's a nerd sport. Oh, okay. Maybe That's not. Fair. Maybe not necessarily. I'm sure there are people who who would qualify as baseball geeks. And sure. If we find a few sure. of them, I'm sure they have fascinating stuff to tell us. Well, and with the advent of fantasy sports of all kinds, it's in the name. This is true. Yeah. This is true. What you reading? I am right now. Uh, I have picked back up and am uh, going back at how the Scots invented the modern world. The true story of how Western Europe's poorest nation created our world and everything in it uh, by Arthur Herman. And it sounds desperately chauvinistic. <laughs> um, and in a way it is, but he does make a compelling case for a very great deal of the philosophical underpinnings of the Enlightenment coming out of the conflicts and the econ the specific economic developments that took place in Scotland uh, at the beginning of what we would consider the early modern era. I could see that. So it's a fascinating read, and as somebody who you know identifies strongly with that part of my heritage and wears a kilt, it's kind of an ego stroke as well. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and reckon, recommend uh, the complete collection of Gary Larson's The Far Side. All right. I'm reading it with my children as bedtime stories. It is so fun. 
Yeah, and you are going to screw them up so hard. <laughs> you know, like like just yeah. just thinking about that right now. Yeah. The, the first cartoon that jumps into my mind yep. is the one because he loves cows. Yes, he loves he loves him some cows, mm-hmm. and it's it's the the two cows staring at the third cow who's who's standing over a barbecue grill, and the, and the one cow pointing at him just saying, "You're sick, Harvey. Yeah, sick, sick, <laughs> sick." See now, uh, in one of, one of the games that I played when I was younger, uh, as an adult, yeah. uh, sometimes would degenerate into discussions of what really is art, uh-huh. and other times it would degenerate into just saying captions to each other from the far side. And so somebody would be like, "Bummer of a birthmark, Hal," <laughs> and we'd all laugh. And that's that's the best one. And somebody like, would be yeah. like, "Hey, everybody, I'm a cowboy. Howdy, howdy, howdy!" howdy. howdy. You know, yeah. and and just. Uh, back, back and forth. forth. Yeah, that's awesome. My favorite of them all was because Gary Larson was a master of the single contained one. But every yeah. once in a while, he'd give you two or three yeah, in oh, yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. This was a six-parter okay. all in the same frame. And it's a man standing there. Sees a UFO. It lands. A monster, uh, An alien comes out, punches him, gets back in, and takes off. And at the bottom, it says, Harold never knew what hit him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was great at this. It those. is my favorite. Now, now here's the deal. Mm. Um, I'm about to tattle on my father. Because my dad was an airline pilot. Okay. And and Larson oh, wrote, a few really, wrote a few really good cartoons about, uh-huh. about airlines. Uh, one one of the one of my dad's favorites was a gigantic baby on the tarmac with, with two guys in, in pilot yes. uniforms sitting on its back, and one turns to the other and says, All right. Let's get this baby off the ground. <laughs> My dad got a big chuckle out of that one, but the one that he he had to admit to finding less funny than he might otherwise have. I know is, what you're gonna say. You're viewing the airplane from from the front. Yep. And the pilot says into the intercom, "Uh oh, looks like we got some turbulence up ahead." <laughs> And one frame with the airplane zagging wildly left, another one zagging wildly right, then another frame with the pilot and the co-pilot both laughing themselves sick, and the last frame is the co-pilot wiping a tear out of his eye, getting back on the intercom and saying, uh-oh, looks like more turbulence. <laughs> because yeah. it's a very we don't have time for the whole story, but to a lesser extent, that actually happened. <laughs> my father actually witnessed that yeah so all right and someday i'll have to share that story so everybody isn't completely freaked out about flying you know public mm-hmm. carriers but yes so yeah no larson you're screwing your kids up but yes. in the best way possible oh yeah yeah it, so. um it's it's so much fun uh you know my daughter loves the puns my son loves the slapstick it's 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 good fun well, the man was a genius. He yeah. is a genius. Yes. He's not dead, but he's yeah. retired. But yeah, no, he's truly a master of the form. Gary Larson, if you're out there and you decide to make an app, we would happily shill the app for you. I would even pay for the app myself. A one-a-day Farsight app? Oh, totally. On a phone? I'd be all over that. Yeah, so. Not so much the family circus. No, no, I want funny <laughs> but, things. But yeah, but, yeah. but Farsight, Foxtrot. I'm a Foxtrot fan. I'd, I'd, I'd pay for I'd pay okay. for that one. Uh, but if you have any kind of an app like that, that you want to find somebody to shill it for you. Even Mary Worth. Okay. Yeah. It's fully 50% of us would pay for Mary Worth. Uh, oh, no, no. I would want to get paid for shilling Mary Oh, Worth. oh yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Or Mark Trail. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, will, we will do that. 
we yeah. we are we are open to that. We are actively you know mm-hmm. hoping for sponsorship. So <clears throat> whatever you got, this would be contact where it was. us. This is this would be where yeah. we would do that ad. Yeah. All right. You have a bevy of books in front of you. Yes, I do. Wildly familiar. Yeah. They they one of them certainly should. Yeah. I know. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you very quickly. Sure. Um, because I, I know, I know that our experiences differ in mm-hmm. regard to our introduction to this, to this particular branch of geekery, but I think it, it would be, uh, good for our audience to know it as well. Your, uh, first, first role-playing tabletop role-playing game experience uh-huh. and your longest running okay. tabletop are... gaming as, as two separate Sure. Questions. Yeah, sure. So, very first one, I was eight, maybe seven. Okay. Uh, and it was Dungeons and Dragons. So okay. Eight, maybe seven puts me in 1985 okay. or so. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And, and when you say Dungeons and Dragons, are uh-huh. we talking about the box set? I don't know. My parents okay. had the books. Right. And we played in Theater of the Mind. Although okay. my dad was a minis head, so I had a few miniatures. Um, I forget exactly what I played. I might have been a cleric or I might have been a fighter. I don't remember which. Okay. Uh, I remember being upset that clerics could only use maces. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't use sharp weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember if that changed what I was going to do. Okay. Um, and then uh, there were some NPCs that my dad added for us. Yeah. And they tried to get me into it. And I, you know, back then it was the, the halcyon days of save or die sometimes. And yeah. yeah, and uh, I remember we. That's a divisive mechanic to this yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I remember dying uh, at the hands of several lizard men. All right, so that, that would was... be a vivid memory to carry from that age. Yeah. Okay, so now that's your first experience. First experience. Now your longest running one, though. Ooh, might set a record at the table. Okay. Uh, started playing. I started playing Alcadim D and D. Second ed. Okay. It turned to third ed. Like three point oh came All right. out. All right. We converted it. Uh-huh. And then nine eleven happened. Uh-huh. So this was ninety nine to two thousand <clears throat> to two thousand one. Might have been okay. two thousand to two thousand one. Yeah, then nine eleven happened. Two thousand oh one. And right. the game master did not feel comfortable playing Al Kadim. Okay. In light of that happening. Interesting. It was odd. It's, yeah. You know, people react the way they're going to react at that moment. Yeah. So, I think the game petered out shortly thereafter. I think maybe he had to go back to school or something like that. Okay. A bunch of us really enjoyed playing. Yeah. And we decided, hey, why don't we play a different game? And I suggested West End Games Star Wars. The the best and forever the truest, I uh-huh. think, to the feel of the movies Agreed. version of the Star Wars role-playing game. Just going to get that out there. Uh-huh. So it was October of 2000. No, it was February of 2002. Okay. Because the joke was I had till March. Okay. So it was February of 2002. And we played that game until 2015. Same game. Mm-hmm. Same characters, same Holy story arc. All At right. our 10th anniversary, I commissioned an artist to do up our group nice. as a photo as though it was a snapshot taken during the actual story. Oh, very cool. Uh, I'll show it to you after. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then at our final game, mm-hmm. the Game Master, now the guys I played with, yeah. were, in case they listen to this, Rich, Logan, and Martin 
mm-hmm. and myself. Uh, and on occasion, a, f- a few other people would bounce in and out. Uh, Rich, the, the game master, he'd done it for years. He, uh, he contacted the guy, I think his name was Nick Capsian or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Contacted that guy who had written the original West End Games Edition rules. Yes. Contacted him, sent him three or four first edition books... Got that guy to personalize a message to each one of us and gave it to us on our last game. Wow. Yep. And so that, in his... I, I yeah. had not... That last part I had not known. Yeah. I, I, wow, I'm envious. And in his downstairs <clears throat> game room... Okay. Uh, he has, with a light focused on the picture, the picture that I gave us. Nice. So Very cool. Yeah. That was the longest game. All right. So... That game I, saw me through two marriages, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah. And... and after the second one of those happened, there was the very brief game you were running that I was yes. in. The less said about that, the better, because I still feel morally uncomfortable with the choice that essentially I made as the leader, <laughs> as the leader of our group and everybody else went along with. I really want to revisit that game, too. I, I really do, because I really want to think harder about how how easily I made the choice I did. Order, order 66. Order 66, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's not, I, I wanted to bring that up sure. because tabletop role-playing games are something that those of us who are involved in them, mm-hmm. they, they are a way of connecting with our friends for a very long period of time. Yes. Uh, they are a way of, of maintaining continuity and friendships, mm-hmm. uh, when other stuff in your life changes, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. marriages, children, divorces, whatever, uh, when you are able to maintain that connection to people, um, it's a way of maintaining that connection. And so um, it's something that people get very passionate about. Yep. Um, and my own first experience was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. As I've mentioned on previous episodes before, mm-hmm. uh, through an enrichment program, actually at the, at the private school I wound up attending in Hawaii. Um, <clears throat> and um, also probably the, long, the, the longest running group mm-hmm. that I have that I have played with um, is the the group of folks that has it's the same dungeon master I had when I was starting for my freshman year of college mm-hmm. uh, two well one now of my college roommates and um, and I mm-hmm. uh, are essentially the the original throughput on the the uh, ship of ship of Odysseus I'm trying to remember what the what the where where it's it's a philosophical question about okay. how many parts of something can you replace and Before. still claim it's the same thing. Oh, I okay. The, I want to say ship of Odysseus. You know, we're 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 kind of the original spine of that ship sure. that, that has carried on. There's other people that have come and gone, whatever. And, okay. And, um, and so we have even moved through editions of the game. Uh, we started out playing second edition AD and D. Uh, and right now they, I am not with them because new parent, but they are currently playing in first edition AD&D. Uh-huh. And there are some very significant um, arguments online. The statement that I just made a mm-hmm. moment ago about West End Games' version of Star Wars right. would be less controversial amongst okay. Star Wars players than if I were, for example, to say that um, 
fifth edition D&D is the best playing experience mm-hmm. for Dungeons and Dragons. If I were to go into a chat room online right now and type that up, I wouldn't even get to the point of hitting send before <laughs> somebody else somewhere else on that same chat room would psychically sense uh-huh. that I was about to express that opinion and I would be buried under mm-hmm. a mountain of hate mm-hmm. from people who carry the torch for first edition, second edition, third edition 3.5. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't a D&D specific platform, I would have Pathfinder people sure. jumping on me. The whole formation of Pathfinder was born out of the edition wars. Right. Uh, because 4th edition came along. It was a radical departure from what 3rd and 3.5 had been. Yeah, it looked like they tried to World of Warcraft D&D. They, they did. Yeah. They did. And here's the thing. I I genuinely enjoyed it. It was, mm-hmm. it was very different. Yeah. And the limitations of what they were trying to do became clear very quickly. Yeah. But I had a lot of fun with it. I really liked the way they were able to make classes work. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm one of those guys who goes around talking about, no, look, I'm a paleo gamer. I've been doing this longer than most of the people at the table have been alive, right. literally. In some cases, depending on where I am. And um, I I enjoyed 4th edition. I okay. was not willing to be the standard bearer in in, in the edition wars. Sure. Um, because I also, I like all of the incarnations of the game. I, yeah. I am a fan of all of them in their different ways. And what I'm going to be talking about today has to do with one of the quirks mm-hmm. of 1st edition AD&D. Okay. Okay. See, whereas I, with the additions, is similar to how I am with my children. I have enjoyed every stage of their development thoroughly. Yes. I don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I enjoyed the heck I've out been, of 3.0. I've been, I've been a parent long enough. I totally understand <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. And some people are like, I miss when they were that age. I don't. I don't. And, I mean, I don't miss when they were five and seven. And when they were five and seven, wasn't that radically different when they were six and nine? Yeah. Uh, and believe it or not, yeah, that does work because one of them's two and a half years older than the other. Yeah. Uh, but like, I love five e. I couldn't imagine wanting to play three five now. I loved three five. I couldn't imagine wanting to play two. Yeah. I loved two. Couldn't imagine wanting to play one. Yeah. But I understand that mindset. Yeah. Here's my thing, mm-hmm. um, and and this is going to earn me all kinds of hate. And you know what? I will I will feed on that hate. I at E.H. Really, Blaylock. Yeah, at E.H. Blaylock, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can flame me all you want to. Or at Geek History Time. Or at Geek History Time. You can yeah. hit me up there, too. Um, of all of the editions, mm-hmm. I think 3.5 mm-hmm. was the one eventually, mechanically, mm-hmm. I least enjoyed playing. I would agree. Um, there were, when it first came out, when 3.0 first came out, there was a lot of stuff in it I really liked. And then... It, it was a, a much-needed reboot. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and then within several years, mm-hmm. uh, Wizards had developed a new business model for the way they were doing the game mm-hmm. that I think doomed it mechanically. And it basically was every five months, every six months, we're going to mm-hmm. come out with a new supplemental hardback book. Mm-hmm. And in every supplemental hardback book, there's going to be new feats and a new prestige class right. and new this and new that. And my college roommate, who is part of the longest running campaign group that I've been in, uh-huh. 
um, is the kind of collector and the kind of He's Nick, a completionist. Nick, Nick, I love you to tears. Understand this when you hear this, but I got to be honest. He's the kind of manic, obsessive rules lawyer mm. that when we would level up in, in a particular campaign I'm thinking of, he would be paralyzed for days. Gotcha. Because he needed to try to figure out what the best way was to optimize what new feat he was going to take because he would carry two backpacks with him to go to our game to carry all of the books that all of that stuff was in. I understand the draw for that. I have almost all of the WEG books for Star Wars. Yeah. Almost oh, all yeah. of them. Oh, yeah. So I get so it. It's, yeah. I get it. So, but, but the thing was, you know, after a certain point, trying to keep track of the math and the modifiers and everything was something that, like, we couldn't all do. Sure. And so, anyway... Back to what I'm talking about. So you're talking about first edition. first edition. We're going yeah. we're going back to first edition, and and this is first edition AD and D. This is not the boxed set. This is 77 to 79. This is Gygax's baby. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dungeons and Dragons was mostly designed by Gary Gygax with a lot of input and a lot of help from Gary Arneson. Or not okay. Gary Arneson. Dave Arneson. Dave sorry. Arneson. Okay. Dave Arneson, and um. They, they wound up, they both wound up founding TSR, and they both wound up being part of Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. And they are both secular saints, you mm-hmm. know, within, within the geek community. And um, the game as a whole, like I said, they worked together to develop the game. And Arneson moved on to take on the mantle of handling the development of the basic game, the boxed sets. Uh-huh. Gygax elaborated the rules out to the lower planes and back for, for AD&D. Okay. He was like, okay, we got this basic structure. That's awesome. Now right. um, let's let's drown it in frosting. We've baked a cake. We've uh-huh. got a good cake. Uh-huh. Uh, let's let's drown that son of a gun in frosting. Okay. Da- David Lee Roth, there's, a, there's an analogy. David Lee Roth used to use talking about uh, doing a rock and roll show. Uh-huh. His idea was if you can get one guy out with a guitar play a good guitar, play a good song, that's baking a cake. you got to be able to bake the cake. Right. Once you can bake the cake, drown that son of a bitch in frosting. And that's and that was Gygax with AD&D. All right. The basic game stressed simplicity, playability. AD&D was much more about detailed rules and more options for play. So Now, D&D came from people who had been miniatures gamers yes. with lots of rules about measurement and this and that and the other because they were essentially simulationists. Yes. Right? Yes. And if I'm stepping on your toes, stop me. No. Um, and so the simulationists got to the point where they're like, well, this is all cool and I can outmath you, but what's that one guy's story right there? And so then they kind of got into the theater of the mind type stuff. So it came from simulationism. Yeah. And that fed a large part. Hence all the tables every five pages. Well, and and the and the index at the back of yes. Unearthed Arcana with a detailed description of the difference between a Fauchard and a Fauchard fork and a Gizarm Volge. Which all pole arms. They're all they're all yeah. pointy bits on the end of a stick yeah. with, you know, different characteristics depending on who you're trying to kill with them. Right. You know, um and so in, in both systems, mm-hmm. there are some underlying assumptions that actually have less to do with rules mm-hmm. and have a lot more to do with world building. And, and what I'm going to talk about tonight has to do with the world building involved in AD&D. Now, the rule books themselves are setting agnostic. 
Um, you can you can take the AD and D rules and you can play them in a clone of Jack Vance's Dying Earth. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, Jack Vance's Dying Earth was one of the major uh, influences for a lot of what what the 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 game looks like. Mm-hmm. You can take those same rules and you can play them in a clone of Middle Earth, which is what most everybody does. Mm-hmm. You can take them and apply them to Westeros. I mean, you know, it's 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 okay. largely it is setting agnostic, is what I'm trying to say by that. Okay. Um, and and. I think it's worth pointing out that that the world building in the books involved a description of an economy with, you know, gold pieces, silver pieces, copper pieces, you know, the, mm-hmm. this is and in your own world you're encouraged to say okay, well, you know, here in this kingdom a gold piece is, you know, a sovereign, right. a silver piece is a half crown, whatever you want to yeah, call yeah, them. Yeah. But but, you know, on Still your character decimal. sheet, on your character sheet it's a decimal system, whatever. Um, and I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief because there are all kinds of things, especially yeah. in first edition that we can point to and go, you know, if you actually try to extrapolate that out and build a real economy, that'll fall apart in weeks. Well, and I, you I, know. I, I like that people want to like kind of poke holes in that. Yeah. When they're standing next to a dragon. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, like, you know. you're accepting yeah. dragons. Yeah. You can accept a decimal-based economy based on specie currency. You, well, yeah. You can. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Um, You're obviously gone past the this isn't real part. Yeah. Like, chill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's always there's always going to be somebody, and, and I'm friends with several of these somebodies, uh-huh. who is going to take a look at the way the rules are written, and as the game master, you're going to say to him, okay, look... This is what the situation is. And they're going to try to dig into, okay, I'm going to extrapolate from A, mm-hmm. what about B? Okay, well, the way that works is this. Oh, okay, well, if that's how that works, then I've just figured out how I can manipulate this this weird loophole in this reality right. we've created. And so that's that's how that winds up happening. Most of the time, it's players going, "I got to figure out how to get one over on the DM," and you know, figure out it how becomes I can. adversarial. It it well, yeah, and which and goes way, back to the miniatures and the way Gygax originally wrote the rules. And mm-hmm. if you read what he wrote about being a dungeon master, mm-hmm. Gygax was adversarial. Gygax had the opinion that if you're not trying to kill the player characters, you're not doing your job. Wow, Arneson was the no man we're all we're all playing a game we're all here to have fun you know we want to do stuff cooperative storytelling cooperative storytelling so but again what i want to look at here is um specifically related to level advancement Mm -hmm. in first edition ad and d okay and attraction of followers okay it's pretty niche it is, yeah. it is, but it but it says something very telling about the mindset of, of the game design. Say you have a fighter. Okay. Okay, now, in first edition AD&D, mm-hmm. if you are playing with uh, Unearthed Arcana, mm-hmm. you have a fighter. Okay. It is the most bone-simple class in the game. The only primary requisite you have as a fighter mm-hmm. is that your strength has to be nine or above. Now, is this the... the... 3 to 18 scale? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on 3 die 6, 
Mm-hmm. You got to get a strength score of nine or above. You got to you got to have at least average strength. Okay. The rest of your stats, whatever the rest of them look like, doesn't matter. That's that's that is that's it. it. It is literally the lowest bar. Right. Almost the lowest bar anybody has to has to meet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, thieves, mm-hmm. not rogues. An important thing. Thieves. To my dying day, I'm going to make this argument. Oh, Lord. If you're going to play a thief in D&D, mm-hmm. don't say rogue, say thief. You are a professional with a set of skills and a lot of training. Take pride in what you do. <laughs> okay? A rogue is somebody who can't be trusted. If you're doing your job the right way as the party thief, your comrades should be able to trust you. If they can't, you're going to get dry gulched in a ditch somewhere. In the Underdark. For the drow. Anyway, sorry. So, Moving on. So a fighter. So you got a fighter. <laughs> Again, uh huh. You're you're basically you could be the peasant boy who you know has run off with a knife. You found you're, a sword stuck in the middle a of a rock. You yeah, pulled you it know, out. you pulled it out. There you go. That'd be more. That'd wind up being a cavalier. Kind okay. Of more. But okay. but anyway, so um, as as a fighter, you really don't get a lot. The game does not give you a lot of toys. Uh, back up. Back yeah. Up. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. Well, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Thou merkin merchant. I've decided I'm not going to hit him with with uh, Victorian uh, tones of, of disgust anymore. I'm going to use uh, uh, Elizabethan uh, insults. At, you at you this should point. really just have a matrix. Of I, him and I, I, I I do somewhere. Yeah, I don't I don't card. have it. I just don't have it in front of me. <laughs> but but thou merkin merchant, <laughs> scrofulous. I like, ah, I, anyway. like, I like that in response to my Cleve Landing Cavalier joke. You sound like King James. I'm not even... No? I can't. Because he would have been handed the sword by a lady of the lake? Or... Well, actually, King James probably would have been handed it by a, a young boy with, you know, pretty eyes. But anyway, that's that's James for you. Mm. Um, and by the way, his Bible sucked, um, says the Catholic in the room. Um, Hot take. All right. <laughs> you, you know what? You know what? If you want to talk to any biblical scholars anywhere in in the world, the translation is the worst one that's ever been done. It is it is a point of agreement by everybody who is not a fundy. Anyway, moving on. So, as a fighter, you don't get much. Okay. You have more weapon proficiency slots. You can right. you can start the game knowing how to use more tools to beat people up. Sure. You can double up with a couple of those weapon proficiency slots to say, I am specialized okay. in using this one weapon, which means that with your attacks with that weapon, you act in some ways as though you are several levels higher. Okay. You get a plus one to hit and a plus two to damage with it, which is a big deal. It's pretty big. At, yeah. at low level, it's a very big deal. It's a 5% extra it's, chance of hitting. Yeah, and and depending on what die you're using, it's an even higher yeah. bonus to your damage. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's specialization doesn't suck. Now here's the deal. Um, your cavalier buddy, who has much stricter 
uh, ability score requirements in order to qualify gets all kinds of toys. He's still basically a graduate of fighter college. Okay. He's he's still basically the guy who swings a sharpened piece of metal mm-hmm. to, to open people up. But um, he he reflects the idea of, of the feudal knight and especially the later period feudal knight in really heavy armor. Okay. The uh, shinies. Yes. The, the, yeah. yeah. And because uh, we're talking about with uh, Unearthed Arcana available mm-hmm. as opposed to before Unearthed Arcana was published. And so he gets all kinds of bonuses. Now, okay. in the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon, yes. you may remember the character Eric, the cavalier there. Yeah. He was played the one by, with the shield. Played by Donnie, Donnie Most. Really? Yeah. Ralph Mouth. That makes and now that you so hear much it, sense. Right? Yeah, I'm never going to unhear that. Yeah. So, um, by the way, his, when your boy is old enough, yeah. I will happily lend you the discs. My daughter is do plowing to, through them. Do we need to wait till my son is old enough? No. Okay. Because I have I have <laughs> a massive, big, soft, squishy spot yeah. in my chest for that show. So, but you'll you'll remember his magic item was a shield. Yes. Because one of the things that Cavalier could do in first edition before it became a mechanic for anybody anywhere mm-hmm. was you could say, this round I am choosing to parry. Okay. And you would be able to increase your armor class mm-hmm. by your whatever your attack bonus was. Okay. You could you could Oh, very nice. So, so make so it a lot you, harder you to could, hit you. You could tank that much harder in, right. in modern World of Warcraft terms. Sure. Whereas the fighter was just I'm standing here in all this armor. Come at me, bro. Right. I got a detail. You may land, dice. you may you not. May, you may land, you may not. So y- y- everybody else gets toys. The, the Cavalier gets that. The mm-hmm. Thief has all of his professional, <laughs> highly trained <laughs> skills. The Wizard gets uh-huh. spells. Right. And, of course, the, the a Fighter's uh, advancement is linear. Uh-huh. Or power, the power curve for Fighters is linear. Okay. The power curve for Wizards is logarithmic. Okay. When you look at the access to the spells they have access to, when you're a ninth level fighter, mm-hmm. you're you've got a lot of hit points. You have a lot more. You gotta have a lot more hit points than everybody else. You're mm-hmm. durable. You probably got really good armor. You're mm-hmm. hitting pretty hard. But the wizard has the ability to stand behind you and at ninth level blow the ever loving daylights out of companies of soldiers at a time with a delayed blast fireball okay. or a lightning bolt or sure. or at higher level spells like cloud kill and eventually wish. Right. So, you know, wizards, again, it's logarithmic. If you Fighters survive long more, enough. Yeah, if you survive long enough, you get to unlock the secrets you get of the to cosmos. Use, you get to use fighters as bodyguards. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And clerics, okay, to a lesser extent, kind of the same way. Clerics now, yeah. have have um, powerful. They get some very powerful attack spells. Sure, they get flame strike. They get blade barrier. They're they're kind of they're they're biblically thematic. Right. And then they have all of all of the healing spells are right. a cleric thing. With uh, like with parry, I just want to go yeah, back yeah, to that yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Does that work only in melee, or can that work if somebody's throwing impos- improvised weapons at you? I am trying to. Re- I believe it is. I am. It, it's essentially. I'm holding my shield up. I'm taking a defensive stance. Like in so, if you're fighting edition, like a group of fighting defensively, Freemasons or uh, roofers. Yeah. Um. You could. Um. I see it coming. I don't know what it's <laughs> going to be, but I see the look on your face. So, so you you could say be a. Uh, you could declare a Tyler Perry. <laughs> oh yeah, I need to get that matrix. <laughs> Good day, sir. <laughs> I'll just have to fall back on that. Sure. So, or if but, somebody's throwing felines at you, it could be like a, a caddy Perry. Caddy Perry. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm not proud of that I'm, one. I'm, you shouldn't be. No. I'm ahead on points on that, that one. That hurt. But that but, was but not that was, good that technique. Was, that, was a, that was a cheap move. Yeah. That was a cheap move. <laughs> so, oh, God. You're just littering the place up with those. So... <laughs> Uh, so the one thing you do get as a fight, because as a fighter, you have sharpened pieces of metal. Mm-hmm. The sharpened pieces of metal get bigger and more magical as you find them. Okay. You, you hit more often than other people, but your cavalier buddy uses the same attack table you do. So mm-hmm. he has all the bonuses he's got. Plus he has the ability to train and increase his, his, uh, stats over time. Every time he gains a level, his strength, his dexterity, and his constitution, he can, he can, because he's oh, like, that, yeah. like a knight, he's right. constantly training on a daily basis. Right. So every time he goes up a level, he actually gets to, to roll dice to see how much those stats go up. Is everybody else just static? Yeah. Really? In first edition, your oh, stats, wow. your stats didn't change unless you got a wish spell or a magical item of some kind that wow. allowed you to do that. Okay. So that was a big deal. So you were, it's a Calvinistic game. It is. It really yeah. is. Yeah. What, okay. what you are at the start. I hadn't even thought of framing it that way, but yeah. you're totally right. What you are at the start is what you're going to be at the end, minus whatever grace the DM decides to give you. And the the important part is how you use what gifts you have. Yes. So, wow, that's... Well, and you're all doomed to die. Well, yeah, that's going to happen. There's no way, and there's no way for anybody to know which of you are going to reach glory and which ones aren't. Right. Sorry, I'm going in. I'm, I'm stuck yeah. on Calvin's predestination. No, I'm, as, I'm as still. I'm looking at it more as like a, a American. Yeah, American mythos. Like, oh, um, we're gonna get into that oh, further here in a moment. Okay, yes. do it. Do it. I had not seen that aspect of it, mm-hmm. but you're not wrong. Yeah. So you're the all one theoretically thing, equal. Yeah. yeah. The one thing you get. Uh huh. The one. The one glorious thing you have to look forward to as a fighter in first edition AD&D. Let me guess. Let me guess. Um, hang on. Let me think. It would have to be like the ability to kill things. No. Well, that that increases linearly Yeah. Okay. Time. Okay. Hang on. So the thing you get that would set you apart from all the rest as yeah. a fighter yeah. would be... You get items to imbue with magic. It like like all the things that enable you to dance in other people's yards seem to be item based and inventory uh-huh. based. And you don't get to go up in stats unless you're a cavalier. Uh-huh. So to as a fighter, you and everybody has hit points, you just have more. Yeah. So as a fighter, you you get extra attacks. You do. Okay. You do. But that's not But that's it. not that doesn't differentiate you from your paladin buddy or your okay. cavalier buddy. All right. Let me think. Um your cat paladin buddy. They're, they're like they're like you, only with other abilities other cool and shit. other other powers and other cool toys. Is it just that you your linear progression is quicker than theirs? Uh, well, you you don't require as many experience points to get to higher levels. Oh, there is okay. that. You know that reminds me of that uh, board that. game dungeon where yeah. to win as a this as a that as yeah. a this as a that you gotta yeah. have a higher score. Okay, so your progression is shorter. Um, and therefore, you get more powerful quicker. Yeah. Um, okay, so what would you get? I'm stumped. Uh, everything okay. I can think of is just item-based. Okay. Um, <clears throat> as a fighter, Yeah. Um, the PHB, first off, it needs to be noted, the player's handbook uh, originally only covers advancement to 11th level uh, for fighters and clerics, 12th level for everybody else. So at 9th level, 
Uh, whoa. Yeah, so okay. so by the time you get to ninth level, you are really close to, okay, we've gotten to max level and we're going to have to start a new campaign now. Okay, this is before anybody, wow. this okay. is before the idea of epic level D&D had become a thing. Right. Okay. Uh, what, what the rule books say is, past this point, you get two hit points every level. You require 100,000 XP per level going up here. Everything is fixed from this point out. And, and, it's not worth doing. And that's it. And it's yeah. really not... Yeah. So, you know, you could have a 20th level fighter, but he would be, you know, 25, 30 hit points stronger than a 12th level fighter. And that would kind of be it. Yeah. Um, what you get at 9th level as a fighter that nobody else gets... No one else gets this. Okay. Is that you have the option of establishing a freehold. Um, yeah. You get property? Yeah. Let me explain how it works. No, wait, wait. Who gives a fuck? Like, you can't take it with you. Literally. And now you're married to that spot. Like, ooh, adventure time. Like, I'm going to go administer... Mount Vernon. Like, well, you know, what the leave, shit is leave, this? You leave somebody else behind to do all the lording. You get to go off so, at night So that and you do get what, pretend sovereigns. Well, hold on. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, hold on. So here's the deal. Step one. Uh-huh. Go out in the wilderness someplace, build a stronghold. Uh, go out, go out. You have to roleplay this? You can. Okay. In most of the campaigns that I played in, playing AD&D, it was... You unlock it. And you, you just... Go. Here you go. Okay. Go out and build a stronghold. Step two. Now, this is where you get to the point that we're talking about. Okay, you are a ninth level fighter in a campaign that only goes up to, you know, 11th level. Right. You have all of your buddies with you who are now, you know, the wizard's probably 7th or 8th level because of his advancement. It your takes thief, longer. Your thief buddy is probably a level or two ahead of you. At this point, because he has he requires even fewer XP okay. to go up in level. Talk to my buddy Nick about how our DM tried to keep him in line with the rest of the party. I'll have a double order McSpector shake and a side order of whites, please. Yeah, because you used level to draining, take damage. Level draining undead. And also they had like certain spells you cast had to cost you XP. Or like you had to make uh, scrolls. You had to, you had to spend, yeah, to, to spend put XP scrolls. to make scrolls. Rogues sure. didn't have thieves. Right. Thieves didn't have to worry about that. No, no, no. This, this, this was. Uh, you, you see a box in the middle of the room. It's latched with an eldritch sigil. Everybody in the room is like, uh, "Yeah, I, I think, I think we know this. This is not going to be good." Right. My buddy Nick says, "Ryan, to our DM, I'm turning around and walking down the hall the other way." Ryan. Okay. Is anybody going to open the box? Three or four people. <laughs> Back and forth. Nick, from the far end of the table, from the DM. Ryan, did you hear me? I'm walking away. I'm, I am i got to be at least 15 feet away from the door by now, Ryan. I'm walking away. <laughs> we open the box. Ryan goes, okay, and now rolls a die. The specter flies out of the box that had been imprisoned in and goes after. Clatter, clatter, clatter. Ryan, do you hear me? I'm running down the <laughs> hall. Goes after Nick. <laughs> Son of a... Because we knew it was coming because he was two right. levels ahead of the rest of the party. Right. It was so transparent. It was ridiculous. Oh, wow. But so anyway, your thief buddy is probably at least a level ahead of everybody else. Unless least... you have Ryan McMurtry for your DM. Yeah. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? Uh, thank you huh. for listening, Ryan. Yeah, thank you for listening. Please direct all criticisms yeah, to please at, direct, at, at E.H. Blaylock. At e. H. Blaylock. 
<laughs> but that's just such a great story. I had to share it. So step two, uh-huh. get get your wizard buddy, your ranger buddy. Now your thief buddy mm-hmm. is the only other guy who's able to attract any kind of followers. So he might not want to come along with you. His way of attracting followers works differently and probably sounds more fun. Mm. Uh, he's in a city somewhere nearby. Okay. Uh, building his own crime syndicate. He's busy forming a guild, which is to say a mob. That's how he gets followers. Where's and that's Gary, how he gets a revenue stream. Where's Gary Gygax from? The Midwest. That sounds about right. <laughs> the urban area with high yeah. populations yeah. where the politicians are, are yeah. housed. Yeah. Crime uh-huh. syndicate. And Tammany know, Hall. And Al Capone. Right. Well, Tammany Hall was New York. But, I know, but, but, the, but the, the urban the, experience. The, the urban, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas I'm just thinking of like yeah. folk loci of power. Uh-huh. Whereas like you're going out into the wilderness, so you know, you're upstate New York. Or you're Or yeah. the prairie. Right. <laughs> Gonna get to that. Oh. So step two. Okay. Again. With the help of your cleric buddy, your ranger buddy, your wizard buddy. You need their help. You you probably will because your next job is you've got to clear a 20 to 50 square mile area of monsters. So all the bugbears, all the goblins, all the orcs, all the hobgoblins, kobolds if they're there, a dragon if it's around. So to get property in a world that will never really need that property as part of the game you need to take the religious leaders and the frontiersmen with you and get rid of all the indians you're making the jump before i play i'm sorry yeah. i'm sorry yeah okay. no no you gotta go out clear the area of monsters so, monsters you know, i apologize yeah well yeah so <laughs> so step three uh-huh. after you've done that so you've established your your freehold Okay. You've, you've, you've built a fortress, whether that's a wooden keep or a stone castle or whatever. You work out with your own DM. But you've built your fortress. Sure. You've cleared the area of monsters. You have effectively now established your duchy, mm-hmm. barony, whatever you want to call it. And uh, step three, and I'm going to read this uh, from from the textbook. Okay. Uh, when a fighter... I <laughs> love how I called it the textbook. From, from the PHP... <laughs> I didn't even get that. Yeah. What a teacher I am. Because we're teachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, When a fighter attains ninth level, your your title, by the way, at this point was Lord. Well, that's telling. He or she may opt to establish a freehold. This is done by building some type of castle, clearing the area in a radius of 20 to 50 miles around the stronghold, making it free from all sorts of hostile creatures. Now, the way, the way this is written is important. Keep, mm-hmm. keep all of this in mind. Okay. Whenever such a freehold is established and cleared, the fighter will... One, automatically attract a body of men-at-arms led by an above-average fighter. These men will serve as mercenaries so long as the fighter maintains his or her freehold and pays the men-at-arms. And, step four, profit. Number two, collect a monthly revenue of seven silver pieces. Remember, Mm -hmm. again, we're talking about that decimal economy. For each and every inhabitant of the freehold due to trade tariffs and taxes okay now here's the question who are these people like you've gone out in the wilderness right right you have your your 
highly elite band of, you know, fighters, extrajudicial killers that you've gone out right. with your your friends who you've gone out with and you have established a fortress. Uh-huh. You have cleared the area of, you know, bugbears like I said bugbears All the above, before. Right. You know, monsters of whatever kind, griffins, mm-hmm. wyverns, whatever. And um who 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 is it? So you attract these fighters, presumably uh-huh. because you now have a reputation as, you know, I, I have I have this freehold established. I have this territory. I'm this warlord guy. Right. They're like, well, you know, if you pay, I'll I'll hit people for you. <laughs> so they show up. Okay, we know who they are, but who who are the other people who show up? Like, there yeah. there are there are assumptions baked into this that it's like right. what, who who are these people and all of these are taken all of these assumptions are taken straight out of feudalism. Lord again is the title that you get at ninth level. Sure, the fighter PC and his household soldiery presumably have the job of keeping the freehold secure from orcs and goblins, whatever other nasties there are out in the murky haunted wilds. Vikings. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because again. Yep. The feudal system was originally, you know, mm-hmm. codified as a way of saying, okay, look, I'm giving you this territory to control. When the Vikings show up, I'm going to call you to show up on a horse right. at high speed with however many other guys you've got to help me fight them off. And, you know, mutual yeah. protection and all this. I'm the guy in charge. You know, the, Caesar the whole did way. this too. You well, give Caesar, more land yeah. at the frontiers yeah. to veteran soldiers. Yes. Yes. The Colonia. Right. Where from which all of our ideas of colonialism essentially were born. Yeah. So... Again, there are hosts of questions that this begs, but I want to look at the underlying assumptions Gygax made. Okay. First, this is, as I just said, straight up feudalism. Right. With a pioneering Yankee twist to it. Specifically, it's European feudalism. Okay. Because Japanese feudalism still had had the, I'm giving you land in return, you come fight for me when I call you, but there, there was a different underlying set of circumstances involved it, it they're they're they're, sure. they're important differences this is very much the european beast like everything in the starting materials for the game its baseline default is a fantastical recreation of feudal europe mm-hmm. tossed into an anachronism soup mm-hmm. i want to take a minute to talk about the anachronisms involved in okay. the game um the the if you look at the variety of equipment that you can pick up as a first level character um, there is no time period involved. It is not only world oh, I see uh, agnostic, it is time period agnostic. That way you can get all the cool shit. Well, though. you can get, well, yeah. Cool and, and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's a, it's a fantasy thing, but the thing yeah. is they're imposing a very specific sociopolitical overlay onto technologies and tools and even cultural ideas that, that don't, that don't mesh up. Okay. And, and and if you are in a long enough running campaign and you have enough devilishly creative people working on it, you wind up having to figure out ways to stitch everything together and make it work. Right. Um, and, and so Gygax made a very, very big deal about being inspired by Jack Vance and, and the dying earth. Kugel, the clever. Okay. None of this. Okay. Um, no idea. So in D and D, for example, biggest biggest example, wizards have to memorize the spells they're going to cast every day. Right. And they cast the spell, 
and the act of casting the spell and the, and the magical energy that they're that they're exerting basically causes the spell to leave their head and they've got to rememorize the spell. That is taken straight out of Jack Vance's science fiction fantasy writings. Okay. Uh, the Dying Earth, I'll take a moment to segue about Dying Earth for anybody who's not familiar. Uh, it is well worth the read. It is a ripping yarn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it all dates back to the 50s and 60s, so there are a lot of, you know, cultural underpinnings and assumptions that that don't age entirely well okay just go into it knowing that but um the main character of most of the books is kugel the clever okay or of of the novels anyways kugel the clever who is a thief and uh the the landscape through which he travels is earth millions of years in the future when the sun is almost at red giant stage in the sky, okay. technology and science have become have, have begun to break down and eldritch weirdness has crept into the world and some technology has become so advanced that it's already indistinguishable from magic. Okay. But it's been so long since it was invented that nobody knows how it works anymore. Like, we just know we right. push the lever, we go, you know, that kind of dark age kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, so it's it's this wonderfully compelling setting. Mm-hmm. And it's really clear Gygax was a huge fan of it. Okay. Uh, if you look at the Blackmore uh, um, adventures and, mm-hmm. and that part of the Greyhawk setting, it is straight out of Jack Vance. It is, it is we're going to take ray guns and throw them at gothic barbarians or renaissance noblemen and, okay. and have this mashup fantasy sci-fi kind of thing. Sure. So it's wonderful. Um, although although Gygax loathed to admit it, though, ev- he and everybody playing his game mm-hmm. were playing out scenes much more often inspired by Tolkien. Right. Okay. Yeah. One of the central themes of Tolkien, if you're paying attention, is a deep-seated distrust of technology and industry. Saruman is a bad guy. Right. The scouring of the Shire causes all kinds of environmental destruction within the Shire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ents tearing apart Saruman's yeah. works at, at Orthanc. Nature reclaiming Nature itself. Nature reclaiming yeah. itself. Uh, and the idea of the ring as an allegory for a super weapon. I mean, and in, in talking about Tolkien, we talked about he didn't write it as an allegory, but it was, it it was, was, an it was there in his subconscious. It was yeah. all there. Okay. The, the assumption, mm-hmm. in a very Tolkien-esque way, the assumption is that the people paying taxes to our player character fighter are happy peasants and townsfolk working in an idealized set of circumstances under the presumably benevolent authority of our fighter. Okay. Because, again, there's no role-playing involved. You don't actually have to sit around because who really wants to sit around acting as an administrator when what you really want to do is hit goblins in the head with a sword. Right. But that leads to the assumption that, well, you know, they're doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. And because I'm the Lord, I'm collecting these taxes. And presumably these people have shown up in this freehold to live there voluntarily to get their own land and opportunities. Right. So what does this sound like? Honestly, it sounds like, uh, couple different things okay but it, it sounds like the mythos that uh hitler was drawing on okay um and that mussolini was drawing on mm-hmm. which is go back to the yeoman farmer of rome mm-hmm. and that ideal okay uh, so you have 
your noblesse oblige, like you were talking about, yeah. feudal Europe, you know. Yeah. Um, and essentially, yeah. And and so you will get rich yeah. as, as a gentleman farmer, a okay. yeoman farmer. farmer. Yeah. And even in Rome, that was a myth after a very short amount, well, not after a short amount of time, it took about 500 years to get there. But essentially after the Second Punic War, that ceased to be. It became Latifundia. Well, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's that's that's what I'm that's what I'm feeling. Okay. Right now. Okay. That yeoman farmer mythos. Okay, yeoman of farmer Roman. mythos. All mm-hmm. right. So yes, Roman Roman conquest of barbarian peoples is one of the examples that I've got here. Uh huh. Going out, going out into the wilderness. Yep. Killing off all the Celts. Yep. Subjugating the ones you don't kill off. Right. Rendering them no longer a threat. Yes. And then establishing your colonia. Uh-huh. And you have your imperial retired imperial soldiers taking their their land, and then exactly, and then the assumption on the part of the Romans was that other Romans would then head out there to establish themselves and expand Latin culture into the right. barbarian wilderness. And and so again, this is when you get to ninth level. The game tops out at eleventh level. Yeah. So this is, I finally made it, and now I've got one last quest to etch my name into the annals of history. Yes, and then presumably you would start your next campaign with a first-level character, with a group of first-level characters, Mm -hmm. likely starting in the freehold established by the characters in the old campaign. Smart writing there. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah. So now, how about... um, Westward expansion in the U.S. Draws on the same mythology. Yes, it does. Yeah, Jefferson was crazy for it. Claiming yeoman farmers would civilize... Oh! (laughs) Would civilize the Indian. (laughs) And at the same time, absolutely looking out for the efforts and uh, economic sanctity of the Latifundia farmers. Yes. By using that mythos. Yes. Uh, Now, I'm going to point out there might be some people here when I talk about feudalism who might want to talk about the Norman conquest of England. This does not parallel that because the Norman conquest was the top-down imposition of the Norman fighting class over the Saxon commoners with very little driving out. Okay. Now, the great heathen army Mm -hmm. might be a better parallel out of English history or out of British history Mm -hmm. where the Vikings showed up. Uh Uh-huh. And the Vikings said, well, you know, uh, we really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice. And uh, it's not as cold as back home and the soil is a lot better. So, yeah, sure, I think we're going to settle. And in the process wound up, you know, killing a whole bunch of Saxons and, <laughs> you know, taking over their, their land. A bunch of guys named Oli. Um, <laughs> to go back to our go back to the wrestling, wrestling episodes because I just I still can't get over uh, seeing anybody named Oli as a bad guy, but uh, they were. Uh, he was an asshole, and and so um, so the, the Great Heathen Army is a little bit of a stretch, but not not a big one. Sure. Uh, but what you have to see if you look at it for half a second, which uh-huh. is part of what we're doing here, yeah, with this whole podcast, is the fighter's career culminates in colonization. Yeah. The underlying assumption is that this is good, happy farmers colonization with literal monsters being the only ones put out. But clearly the template is the same as the historical examples above. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting to see this showing up in escapist fantasy because it offers a window into our own national identity and our own values. Mm-hmm. Why did we revolt against Britain to, to 
take take this in possibly an mm-hmm. unexpected direction, but probably not after we've had this discussion just immediately. Why? What? What was the ultimate? The the ultimate big issue mm-hmm. that led to revolt from Great Britain. So you don't mean the catalyst. You mean the main underlying. I mean. I mean. Force. I mean the underlying force. Yeah. The okay. underlying force. Well, they cl- they cried taxation without representation. They cried taxation without representation. Yeah. That is that is the ideological philosophical yeah. thing. But there was a specific limitation that Parliament mm-hmm. placed on the colonists. Mm-hmm. There was a specific circumstance that led to soldiers being boarded in colonist houses. Throughout the colonies, mm-hmm. the, the, the military presence in the colonies in the first place, even before rebellion. Well, the, the colonists kept picking fights westward, and the Brits had to keep saving them. The lobsters had to keep saving them. Yes. And then they were like, all right, now you got to pay for what you've done. And mm-hmm. the, the colonists were like, no, man, I'm at college. I'm living my life. <laughs> like, just you send a check, You can't tell me what dad. to do. Just send yeah. a check, dad. So, Yeah. 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 The ultimate answer here is yeah. we, mm-hmm. our ancestors, wanted sure. to expand beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Right. And the Brits had said, no, no. First off, the French own that. Mm-hmm. We fought a war over it. We don't want to fight another one. No, you can't do that. Yeah. Second off, um, you you keep wanting to expand into these territories. And like you just said, we keep having to send troops yep. to you know save your bacon. And you got to pay for that somehow. You know, we, we got to feed these guys. Yep. We got to keep a roof over these guys' heads. You got to pay for that. So, so we we wanted our ancestors, all those Ulster Scots who'd been kicked out of out of Britain, <laughs> wanted wanted to expand because well, damn it, I'm too close to all my neighbors. <laughs> I can see their house from here. It's too <laughs> bloody close. We we they wanted to expand right. now. Also, other than well, oh, real yeah. quick, a lot of the people who wanted to expand were finishing their seventh year of uh, indentured servitude. Yes. And there was no land for them to have because all the good shit got taken by the rich who came in, cleared it out, and set up their own freehold. Yeah, well, yeah, the Virginia Company. So, yeah. And, yeah. and so you have... Jefferson! Yeah. Uh, so, <coughs> you have... Washington! <laughs> Don't Sorry. Madison. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <coughs> <coughs> Got yeah. wrote the Constitution. Yeah. Um, but you have a whole bunch of people... Who this is their only shot at actually getting the land that they came out there to get. Like they oh, put yeah. in their seven years, they survived. And now, I mean, Daniel yeah. Day Lewis gave a wonderful speech to Madeline Stowe about this very thing yeah. in uh, Last of the Mohicans. Uh, and they bumped right into the French. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and the Indians. Smacked yeah. right into them. Yeah. Um, so you, you have uh, people who historically had been dispossessed back in the aisle mm-hmm. then come over it's like hey by the way you gotta give seven years of free labor because i paid your way over here okay fine i'll do that but then i am my own man and there was this fundamental idea mm-hmm. that every man had a right to his own homestead yes and now we get into talking about jeffersonian democracy and and that whole yeoman myth yes okay? so jefferson and the early Democratic Republicans had a mad on about yes. farmers. Oh boy, howdy! They they believed that the merchant class was inherently corrupt. Yes, being divorced from the land right. meant that all you ever dealt with was money, 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 
Hubba hubba hubba. Right. Who do you trust? Not real to estate. Quote Jack Nicholson. Not real estate, but mm-hmm. just liquid money. Assets. Yeah. And and so merchants were corrupt. Bankers were even more corrupt. Mm-hmm. They believed that crafters and factory workers couldn't be trusted because they were dependent on merchants and bankers. Yep. And so the only people that you can trust mm-hmm. to run a republic mm-hmm. are farmers. Because wow. they're self-sufficient. Okay, let's because back it they up. live on the land. Let's back it up for a second. Okay. There's a religious component to this too. Explain. These are Protestants. Yes. Oh. You cannot trust Catholics. They're the ones that stay in the cities. You can't trust bankers. Those are the Jews. There is there is a deep seated religious. Okay, I'll I hadn't yeah. I hadn't spotted that parallel. Yeah. I'll I'll say that's probably part of it as well. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm just thinking about like the religious makeup of the United States. Yeah. As the early colonies. Yeah. Most of your Catholics were in the northern colonies. Well, most of your Catholics were in Maryland, Georgia. They were they were not Georgia, uh, Maryland. Some, no, they got booted. Yeah, they, to no, Maryland yeah, and Rhode they, Island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, generally speaking, it was it was a lot of the Mid Atlantic states. Yeah, uh, because they got permission from the crown to be so, Catholic yeah, there. Yeah, uh, because up farther up north, well, no, we don't want any. We're building the city of God. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not. No, we don't. But we don't want your by the time the 1700s roll around. There are more of them there. Yeah, yes. they're they're able yes. to move there up are and down. More of them, yeah. and they are more city born than they are. They yes, they do skew born. urban. Yeah, yes, and, that is correct. And again, uh, money lending had been uh, kind of assigned to the Jewish population. It was yeah, it was it was it was the one way they were able to make a living. Right, in, and in, in a world where Christians were not supposed to ch- charge interest on right. on money. And so, uh, yeah, so so and and so that's going to happen in urban centers as well. Yeah, because it's also just going to be more cosmopolitan. Yeah. Also, the more landed you are, the more English you are, and then the further west you go, the more Scottish you are. Um, yeah, because the more urban you are, the more Netherland Dutch you are. And I, I and, you know, there, there's I, a I few see, other. Well, groups, yeah, yeah, no, I, I see, I, I see the direction you're going in. Mm-hmm. I, I think when we start getting into the Netherland Dutch part, there may be a little bit more analysis than well just because those are your merchants well at yeah that time oh yeah oh, at yeah. that time well yeah but you know john hancock was about as english as you can get yeah and yeah. you know i mean i'm, I'm just i'm i don't want to i don't want to wind up overemphasizing that, that no i'm that just aspect. saying that, that is but those those yeah. are those are certainly factors i will say something mm-hmm. that i just thought of mm-hmm. listening to what you're talking about is there's a very significant regional yeah prejudice involved yeah in that your merchants and your bankers and your factory, very, very, very nascent beginnings of factories, all of your, you know, all of those folks, any, anybody working in manufacturing like yes. that, they're all in the north. Yep. Whereas Jefferson and Washington and Madison and uh-huh. all of them are the southern colonies, which are all intensely agricultural, mm-hmm. intensely plantation. And so there was there was an added level of motivation to to continue this mythology because of their regional interests. There's also another aspect of that that we probably want to look at is that every city still depended on surrounded farms. Oh, yeah. The surrounding farms did not depend on all the cities. 
No. There's this us versus them thing. There's oh, this purity of the land versus the dirtiness the of the thing. And seen. therefore, your fighter goes out and clears it. Good, honest work. Your thief goes into the town and sets up a crime syndicate. Yeah. He's a merchant, ultimately, trading his skills for monies. Yeah. Whereas you own land and you magically get seven silver. Per head. Per head. Per head. Important to say, every man, woman, and child. Yep. Per head. Now, um... Early in the nation's history, there was a minimum property ownership requirement to be able to vote. Yeah. Okay, this was based on the essentially agrarian idea mm-hmm. that if you didn't own land, you, you were susceptible a... to manipulation by a landlord or employer, right. and so your vote couldn't be trusted. Right. If you didn't have sufficient property, you didn't really have the gravitas or sufficient education <laughs> to make those kinds of decisions. And and these are the same people that came up with the three fifths compromise. Yes, yes. Just like, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. They're yeah. telling on themselves. Yeah, and so now it's interesting. Jefferson had such an idealized view of yeoman farmers. Mm-hmm. He wasn't one. No, he was squeezing them out of business. Yeah, yeah no. In his estimation, however, planters like himself, mm-hmm. which is to say, plantation owners relying on slave labor, mm-hmm. could be trusted just as much as yeoman because you know self sufficiency, right? Define self. <laughs> define wait, and, and Jefferson wait. died in debt. So define sufficiency. <laughs> like, well, you know, but yeah. but it was gentlemanly debt. Well, that's a good point. He, a good he died. Point. He died surrounded by his sizable library. That's true. And his and his mansion that was constantly under construction, which was, by the way, the reason he died in debt. Mm-hmm. All that, and he didn't have much of a head for business. But you know, I have such a problem with Jefferson because he. <laughs> Like and and here's my problem. It's so love hate. Oh, yeah. he's he's yeah. an odious human being in oh, so he's many a ways. Douchebag. He's such a jerk. And also, he's the first and only redheaded president. <laughs> I love that's where you go first. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And secondly, and and this is probably you know less laugh worthy and and more interesting on a number of levels. Um, many people have his like gone back into history and looked at the the record of him and said dude was on the spectrum. Yeah. So he's kind of our first autistic president, neurodivergent. Yeah. yeah. And non-neurotypical. Yeah. And yet he's a shithead. And I'm like, and "Damn it." And it's, and it's, yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Well, you got to you got to remember that he was like everybody is. He was a product of his time. He was a product of his class. And that's true cuz John Adams owned that's right none. Yeah. Well, so, and again, I'm going to say product of his region. Product of his region, product that. of his time. Uh when we were talking about um wrestling and the lost cause, yeah. talking yeah. about the religious differences between the north and the south. Yeah. This is before the great awakening, but it is oh, worth yeah. no, it is worth noting that even at this early date, the northern colonies were, of course, all ideologically affected by the Puritans. True. Who were, you know, intensely Dutch Protestant, whereas everybody in the southern colonies was uh, what we today would call uh, Episcopalian. They were they were yeah. Church of England through and through. They were not nonconformists in any way. And so they still carried all mm-hmm. of the England, Church of England ideas about class structure nobility even though we didn't have anybody with titles over here in the united states oh if they totally planter, set up nobility if, if you were a planter you yeah. were a feudal lord with yes a territory i mean that's what a you just didn't call was. it that you didn't call it that yeah because everybody who came over here were second sons so almost none of them inherited 
the property that that went to their older brothers back right. in the old country. It should also be noted, of course, while I'm talking about this, that the guys who had the capital to form the companies that made up the founders of Virginia, the Carolinas, and all those colonies got that money because they came from the nobility in the old country. Mm-hmm. So that mentality came with them over here. Mm-hmm. They recreated so, England recreated its class system in the South. In 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 the Southern colonies, yeah. that's what happened. Yeah. And and the only reason it didn't happen in the North was because it was founded by seditionists <laughs> and religious fanatics. Yeah. So you and, take you and win merchants. Some, yeah, well yeah, and because that's merchants. the Massachusetts area, but yeah. like the New Amsterdam area. Well, yeah. Those are merchants. Yeah, yeah. It's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. So, you know, you win some, you lose some yeah. on, on all sides. But, you know, again, Jefferson and the planters had this idealized view of themselves mm-hmm. as being, you know, yeoman farmers writ large. Right. Like, no, we're not we're, we're not going to say we're yeoman farmers. No, obviously, we're not going to get our hands dirty actually working in the soil. Right. That's peasants' work. Right. I'm sorry, I mean slaves' work. You know, yeah. but, but, you know, it's just a matter of scale. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. No, but... To them, yeah, no, in their eyes, you know, yeah. in, in their eyes, I'm, I, I do not need, right, uh, the the infrastructure of of the mercantile system in the city. I don't need all of all of more that. importantly, I supply them with what they need. Yeah, I, I am the one supplying. I'm crucial them. to them. Yeah, I am, I am crucial to them. They need me more than I need them. Yes. Thus, I am independent. Thus, I am self sufficient. Yes. Never mind the fact that what what Jefferson grew at Monticello was all cash crops. Like like uh-huh. he bought all of his food. He didn't he didn't grow. I mean some some of his you've food got your did. local garden, yeah. But but yeah, you're right. You know staple crops, the stuff that he fed to his slaves, he he bought a lot of it, mm-hmm. and most of the money he did make, even though again he died in debt, it was all cash crops. It was tobacco. It was yeah. um, mostly tobacco at this phase in in colonial history so in his mind he still counted like i said as a yeoman writ very very large oh man uh similarly the rest of his class were to him intrinsically purer republicans with a small r Mm -hmm. than anybody from the industrializing or merchant driven north so at this point Uh what is your takeaway right now well i think it's kind of telling just based on the questions i was asking where's Mm -hmm. gygax from Mm-hmm. Where did he grow up? Because I'm a big believer in regionalism. I'm a big believer in the people that settled that area, mm-hmm. dictated the culture of that area, and you do have some, um, you know, some mutation and some diffusion. But by and large, it's 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 locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so him being from the Midwest makes perfect sense to me because he's from the area that was settled by people who pushed. And dealt with that tension as a part of the culture and as a part of the creation of their statehood. Yeah. Definitely. So to me, if Gary Gygax had been born in, I don't know, uh, Massachusetts, it would have been a different system. Yeah. I probably. think if he'd been born in Florida, it would have been a very different system. If he'd been born in the coast of California or even up in Seattle, it would have been different. Um. I think this is a very Midwestern game now that I think about it. Yeah. I also, just a little aside, um, how funny is it that the memorizing of the spells thing Yeah, is still a mechanic? I think for... For, for balance purposes. For balance purposes. But it's also, it's I think it's baked in in such a way that nobody questions it. 
Oh yeah, no, they've created other this, classes to deal point, with it. Yeah, well, they've created other classes to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Other role playing games that have come after this one mm-hmm. have found other ways to deal with it. Right. Uh, one of my favorite, mm-hmm. um, again, the segues, the fun part is uh, Ars Magica, mm. in which all of the most important player characters are wizards. They just do away with the idea that you know what? Look, everybody else is an also ran. Right. The wizards are the ones who are important. Sure. And so they they said, here's the deal. You don't, of course, you don't memorize your spells. If you forgot your spells, you're no good as a wizard. Right. They're what makes you a wizard. And so it, it has less to do with memorization and more to do with do you perform the spell properly right. every time? It's right. a dice roll every time you do it. And and so, so it, it's an attack roll, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, essentially. But it, it 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 is it is very clearly a game designer's response to yeah. this system. And and it just reinforces mm-hmm. how seminal very. D&D is yeah. to, to everything that has come after, no matter what genre you're working in, no matter what other area you're working in, you're always responding to this the same way fantasy writers are still responding to Tolkien. Right. So, I, so my ultimate takeaway here is this. Um because he grew up in an area that was expanded into. Yeah. Because he grew up in an area, because he lived in an area that was expanded into, and because Gary Gygax uh, lived in kind of the first place that the expansion, the Westward expansion happened. Yeah. His focus on the game yeah. was ultimately very shaped by that. And, it, and the first place that, uh, I mean, Thomas Jefferson did Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. He expanded us westward. Yes. And he saw that as, okay, now we're going to try this yeoman farmer thing I've been trying this whole time. Yeah. And if you look at the schools out there, mm-hmm. I think, is Oberlin College in Ohio? I want to say yes. Okay. I'm going to, I know it's Midwestern. There's another school, uh, their, their mascot is the yeoman. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it's just like this idea of yeoman farming. I mean, hell, even the Mennonites went there for it. Oh, yeah. You know? So it just, again, if he had been 100 miles further west, if yeah. he'd been in Kansas, I think you'd see a different game. I don't know if 100 miles further west would have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what 200. I, part of, but, part yeah. of, yeah, but but part of what I have in my notes here is... Mm-hmm. If if instead of an American wrote this game, a European had written this game, mm, I'm interested. It it could be very different that way there. Okay. So and I'm gonna get into that a bit. We're gonna we're gonna spend some time in the next episode talking about <laughs> talking more about agrarianism and how it affected um, governmental policy. Cool. In 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 our history. So, All right. Well, I can't wait to hear it next episode. Next episode. So, uh, for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And remember, keep rolling those crits.